Uh, singles, what, what's the most difficult thing about being single? It's waiting, right? Waiting. It's terrible. It's terrible to wait. I, I didn't get married until I was uh, almost 31. Waiting. I hate, I hate to wait. Uh, and I have to tell you something. You're going to have to wait this morning. Um, I'm not going to talk about 1 Corinthians 7, the second half. I, I apologize. Promised that I would last week and I forgot uh, the schedule. Blake's going to come in next week and he's going to finish chapter 7. I'm going to be gone this week. So this week I'm going to cover chapters uh, 8 and 10, not, not entirely, but uh, the gist of chapters 8 and 10. So if you want to turn there, chapters 8 and 10, and then Blake will be in next week and he'll do chapter 7. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to give you a list this morning. I want you to tell me, are these things good or are they bad? Are they righteous or are they evil? Well, based on last week's sermon, which if you missed it, you should go back and listen to last week's talked about sex, and, and that's good, right? It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. This is a good list. Things provided by God for his people, things to be enjoyed by God's people, right? We almost feel a little bit uncomfortable saying that in church, right? Can we actually say these are good things and enjoy these things and say they're blessings from God? I said, no, actually, these things are not good. These, these are the idols of our world, It's not an exhaustive list, but these are the idols of our world. You say, well, I feel better about that because we are in church after all, and I need kind of my dose of of legalism and harshness. Somebody needs to step on my toes and wrap me on the knuckles this week. That's why I showed up, right? So I feel a little better about that. Well, actually, they're good and and bad, right? Or they could be good or bad. They they could be either. As we talked about last week, uh, sex is like a fire, and fire is wonderful when it's in the fireplace, proper place, proper time. All of these things can be wonderful gifts from God, but they also do represent the potential idols of our generation. Things that can, can sneak into our hearts and capture our hearts and, and, and dampen our love or even steal our love for God and for God alone. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, I'm, I'm flipping through my Bible and I stumble upon a, a section of the text that talks about idolatry, it's a little easy for me to just kind of check out because I don't own any idols. I don't have idols in my home. I don't have any little figurines or large statues. I don't bow down before them, unless it's that digital one that's playing the game, right? We won't go there. I didn't, I didn't add that to my list, right? But, but we don't think in those terms, do we? The only idols, literal idols that we have seen are in books or they're in museums. We don't think in those terms. But if you study the biblical text, Old Testament certainly and all the way into the New Testament, literal idolatry is really not the problem. What's the problem is what is represented by idolatry. Okay? It's, it's idolatry of the heart, Ezekiel lived in a day in which literal idolatry was rampant, and the Lord spoke these words to him. Chapter 14, he said, Son of man, man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. The, the problem is not that little statue that they're bowing down in front of. The problem is that they have taken that little statue and allowed it to invade their hearts. And they have fallen in love with something that is not me, something other than me. They are longing for what is not God. 
And so they have literally taken the stumbling block of their iniquity, their sin, and they have literally put it in front of their faces. But the problem is what they are putting in front of their faces is what they're falling in love with, and it's not me. And this is really the fundamental problem of fallen human nature is that we can so easily become idolatrous. The human heart is so easily deceived and so easily divided in its allegiance to God. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, put to death, crucify, kill, therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness or greed, which is in fact idolatry. And as we've mentioned before, that word for covetousness or idolatry, it's a combination of two Greek words that mean literally to have more. That is to have more than what God has given me right now or to have something other than what God has given me right now. It's greed. Paul says that greed is idolatry. It's giving your human heart over to something that is other than God. And the root of that is not giving thanks for what God has provided right now. Romans chapter 1. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made So that all of mankind, all of us, we are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They didn't honor God as God. God is God. And only God is God. God alone is great. God alone is worthy of our worship, our our utter and complete entire allegiance. And they didn't let God be God. And they didn't give thanks. They didn't look around at all that God had provided and give thanks for that. Instead, They looked at what they didn't have, and they said, I want that, and that's idolatry. That's idolatry. And you really will miss the the impact on your own heart this morning if you're thinking of idols in terms of little statues or big statues or stone or wood or gold or silver and miss the fact that what the root of the problem is is shared in every generation, and that is there are things that creep into our heart that steal our love for God. That's, That's the point. That's the point. That's the issue of idolatry that Paul is dealing with. So I want to take you back into the culture of Corinth, and I want to connect uh, Corinth with College Station. Corinth was a very idolatrous culture, and we live in a very idolatrous culture. In Corinth, idolatry was absolutely everywhere. Picture here that I've uh, put back up here. I showed it to you during the introduction. This is the temple of Aphrodite in the foreground. And in the background is the Acrocorinth where the temple of Apollo was. And Apollo uh, literally looked out upon the city of Corinth and he cast his shadow over everything that happened. Every civic event was an idolatrous event. It was devoted to a god. Wealthy patron would call for a celebration, or it would be the emperor's birthday, or the Isthmian games that were celebrated here, were embedded with sacrifices to the gods. Birthday party that you're invited to, food had been sacrificed to the gods. If you were invited into a home, most likely the food had been sacrificed to the gods. Sacrificial offerings were a part of idolatry, and idolatry was everywhere in the culture. So folks would take a a portion of food, and they would take that food to the temple. They would dedicate the entire lot to the Lord, and then they would take a smaller portion and burn it up. 
And they would take the larger portion and they would eat it in their own home. And if there was something left over, it was more than their family needed, they would take some of it and they would put it in the marketplace for sale so they could make a little money off of it. Most of the offerings were uh, grain offerings and fruit and that sort of thing. Meat offerings were a little more rare because meat was exceptionally expensive. It was only the wealthy who typically offered meat. Poor family, if they could afford a meat offering, they would eat just a small portion of it. And then they would take the rest and they would distribute it in the marketplace so they could make money. Now, as Americans, particularly as Texans, if we have not eaten meat, we have not eaten, right? (laughs) Every meal includes meat. It includes big portions of meat, right? I remember uh, when I was traveling in Central Asia, it's not not this way. The, the, The most popular dish is a big bowl of rice in the middle of the table and normally On the top of that big bowl of rice, you'll see like two or three small pieces of meat. And if you're an honored guest, you get one of those pieces of meat. Just a tiny portion of meat because meat was so expensive. But for us, we eat meat at every meal, right? Every meal. You haven't eaten yet until the meat comes. Eat the meat first. Meat. I remember the first time that I went through Amarillo, Texas. And some of you will know where I'm going with this, right? I was on a Young Life trip and we stopped to eat at the Big Texan. There it is. There it is, Big Texan, 72-ounce steak. I'd never heard of this before. I'd never seen it before, right? I had just moved down from upstate New York. (laughs) I don't know about all this meat-eating stuff and cows everywhere. You know, the cattle lot is right there. It's right next. Just go get the cow. Kill the cow. Bring the cow. Eat the cow, right? So 72 ounces. And the deal is, if you've never been to the Big Texan, that if you eat this entire 72 ounces and the baked potato with all of the toppings and the salad and the rolls in under an hour, you get it for free. You do not have to pay. Awesome. Especially when you're in high school and all the guys pool their money for the biggest guy to try. I have seen high school boys try this. I've never seen anyone successful because the rule is you have to finish it in an hour and not throw up. I have seen failure. I have seen failure. That's not how it was in Corinth. If you were sitting down to eat meat, it probably had been sacrificed to the gods. But you didn't know. You didn't know. And so there were three scenarios that the believers in Corinth faced. They might go to the marketplace and want to purchase a piece of meat, and they didn't know. Had it been sacrificed to the gods or not? They didn't know. Or they might go to a friend's home and sit down at a meal. And it could be fruit, it could be grain, or it could be meat. They didn't know had that friend, not a believer, sacrificed that food first to the gods. Or if they were invited to a festival that was citywide, they knew certainly that the meat had been sacrificed to God. Or if a friend rented out a public hall and invited everyone in for a birthday party, they knew certainly that meat had been sacrificed to a god. And they were under incredible pressure to eat food that was sacrificed to the gods. Because sharing a meal was the way that you stayed connected to the culture. And to not share that meal was to reject the entire culture and to make yourself an outcast. So if you wanted to maintain your friendships, if you wanted to maintain good relationships with your family, if you wanted to advance socially, you had to keep eating meat. For the Jews who converted to Christianity, this really wasn't a problem because they were already, in a sense, cultural outcasts. They didn't participate in the idolatry. 
And the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, understood that, and they didn't expect that. But if you were a Gentile Christian and you had converted out of idolatry into Christianity, there was incredible social pressure. And so what's happening here in chapter 8 that Paul is addressing is these Corinthian believers are drifting back into their idolatrous practices. And they're not giving honor to Jesus Christ. See, everywhere that Paul went, actually, this was one of the first issues he had to address. Because Paul planted churches among the Gentiles, right? He would start with the Jews, largely. The Jews would reject him. A few would believe. But then mostly these new churches were comprised of Gentile converts. And the first issue that he would talk to them about is idolatry. And mostly he had a really warm reception. Let me remind you of of, uh, one church, the church in uh, Thessalonica. He said, the Christians in Achaia and Macedonia, the surrounding regions of Corinth, they report about us. What kind of a reception we had with you Thessalonian believers, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul said, you Thessalonians, I need to praise you because you turned away from those false gods and you turned completely and utterly in the devotion of your heart to the one true God and to his son, Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead and gives you life. You gave yourselves to Christ and Christ alone. But now these believers in Corinth, the problem is they have not given their hearts completely and utterly to Jesus Christ. They have believed. They are believers. But their hearts are divided. And as we read chapter 8, I want you to listen for Paul's frustration because he's already addressed this issue with them. But they've allowed a, a root of idolatry to remain in their hearts. And remember, for us to understand this and apply it to our lives, the issue fundamentally is not little statues of stone or gold or silver or wood or large statues. It's a matter of the heart. And as we walk through this passage, I want you to keep in mind, is there anything that has gotten a root into your own heart that divides your love for God? I want you to turn with me in chapter 8, if you're not there yet, and read with me chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Paul, in his frustration, is going to go back and he is going to uh, lay again the theological foundation for the worship of God. It says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that. You can pull out your pen again here and put quotation marks. We know that, quote, we all have knowledge. Remember last week we said there are certain slogans that are floating around in the city of Corinth, and they're slogans that the people are using to excuse their behavior. There's, there's partial truth in the slogan, but then they're using the slogan to cover over improper behavior. Paul addresses another one here. He says, we know this, quote unquote, we all have knowledge. But Paul says, let me modify that statement. statement. Knowledge, knowledge alone, knowledge by itself makes arrogant or it puffs you up but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know this, another quote, there's no such thing as an idol in the world, unquote. And we also know this, there is no God but one, quote, unquote. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist 
through him. Paul says, here's your quote, we all have knowledge, but knowledge by itself just makes you proud. Knowledge with love is what we're all about. Knowledge with love first for God. Then all of your life will align around that love for God. Undivided and complete devotion to God. Paul says, let me remind you what we mean by knowledge, true knowledge. First, there is no God but one. It's a true statement. It's a foundation for Judaism. It's a foundation for Christianity. There is just one God. Where does that phrase come from? It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Great Shema. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Shema is the first word. It is literally hear, meaning you better pay attention. God says many things, but listen up right now. Listen. Israel, there is just one God. What was Israel's fundamental problem as they lived in the promised land? The the people around them drew them into idolatry. That is, they drew their hearts away from undistracted devotion to God and God alone. God is one. There is just one God. And by implication, therefore, there's only one God that should occupy your heart. And it is the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. For Christians... There's more that's been revealed to us. Jesus is Lord. Chapter 8, verse 6. For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. Paul lays the foundation for a Trinitarian theology. There's Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, but... One God. God is the source of all things, but he created through Jesus Christ. That means he created you. And if he created you, you belong to him. Body, soul, spirit. There's just one God. There's just one son, Jesus Christ. Third truth. Idols are not real gods. Idols are not real gods. Verse four. There is no such thing as an idol in the world. True? Well, true, true, there are not really gods. There are idols, but they're not real gods. The problem is that there are idols. Verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are in fact many gods, and there are many lords. Idols are not real gods, but idols are real. And idols are dangerous. Turn to chapter 10, verse 19. Chapters 8 through 10 actually form one unit, one entire unit. Paul develops his argument. In the middle, chapter 9, he uses his own example. Chapter 10, he uses the example of Israel. Chapter 10, verse 19, he says this. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he is, are we? See what he's saying is, idols aren't real gods. That means that when people sacrifice food to these idols, they're not really sacrificing it to a god. But but these idols are real, and these idols represent something. What they represent is demonic forces. And so when people sacrifice to these idols, they're giving their heart to demons. 
And since there is one God, you should have one heart, and that one heart should be completely and utterly devoted to the one true God. Don't let it be divided. Chapter 10, verse 1. Paul uses Israel's example. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's saying, what happened to God's people, Israel, is an example for you, and you should learn from this. I want you to be aware, brethren, believers, that the Israelites were identified with Moses. That is, they believed that he was their deliverer. And so he, he rescued them through the power of God. He rescued them, and they were under the cloud. That is God's guidance. A pillar of fire by night, a cloud by day. And he brought them through the water that was a symbol of death to their old life and life that they would find in God. They were a redeemed people. They passed through. A redeemed people belonging to God that God brought into the wilderness and provided for them. Verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. What's he talking about? Manna, right? God provided manna. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Wow, that's interesting theology, isn't it? He's not saying Jesus is a literal rock because Jesus is a person. He's not inanimate, right? Okay. It's a figure of speech. He's saying that rock that poured forth water that provided for your needs so that you could live in the desert which provided nothing, that rock represented Jesus Christ. The water of life from God. Jesus Christ represented, was represented by the manna. Jesus himself would say, I am the bread which came down out of heaven. And if you eat of me, you will never die. If you drink of my blood, you will always live. I am water, I am life, I am blood, I am bread, I am your provision. Paul says, the rock, literally, and the manna, literally, represented God's provision for you physically and spiritually. All that you needed, God provided. Your heart didn't need to go anywhere else. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, and they were laid low in the wilderness. Believers? Yeah. Now these things happened uh, happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You are at risk of idolatry. You're at risk of your heart being divided. I want you to hold your place here in 1 Corinthians 8 and turn back to Exodus chapter 32. One of the events that Paul alludes to here is from Exodus chapter 32. Moses has gone up onto Mount Sinai received a word from the Lord, the Ten Commandments. He's brought those down, not yet written on stone. He's brought them down and said, here's what God has spoken to you. Will you agree to this covenant with God? And they say, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. So Moses goes back up on the mountain again. And Moses is up on the mountain. 
And he's up there, and he's up there, and he's up there, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and waiting, and they see the fire and the smoke, right? And it's scary, so much so they don't even want to get, get near the mountain, and the mountain's trembling. And there's smoke, and there's fire, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. It's really hard to wait, isn't it? We hate to wait. When we're waiting for God to do something for us, what are we tempted to do? Let's just go out and get it for ourselves. That's idolatry. That's what happened to them. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron, and they said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Great idea. (laughs) Tear off the gold rings which are in your ears, in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to play, which is another one of our euphemisms. Man, it was a, it was a mess. You know, we're tempted to read that story and we say, Oh, way, you know, if I had seen fire and smoke up on the mountain, and I'd heard that rumbling, and Moses had brought down a word from God, then, then I would always believe, I would actually, I'd never sin again. I wouldn't, it would be so dramatic, and I would hear it and see it and believe it, and I would, be, I would be inoculated from all sin because of that dramatic visual demonstration. And that's all I'm asking for from God. God, show up like that, and then, then I will give you my entire heart, right? And I will never turn from you again. But you know what? This is human nature, people. This is human nature. If we had been there, we probably would have followed. We probably would have followed. And the issue was not the golden calf, but what the golden calf represented, which was their craving, their longing to fill up their lives with something other than God. And even Aaron, Moses' brother, who had not just seen the signs and wonders of, of, of Egypt, but he had actually participated in carrying them out. He changed just like that. Because you need to understand, the human heart is incredibly vulnerable. It is incredibly fragile. It's incredibly susceptible to being divided and loving something other than or in addition to God. And that is what Paul is warning of here. Where does that come from? Go, go all the way back with me to the garden. In the Garden of Eden, God says, here it is, Adam and Eve, this is your garden. You see tree after tree and all the produce, it's the most fruitful land that's, that's ever existed that I have created. It is beautiful to your eyes. It's pleasant to smell and to touch and taste. It's wonderful. And I want you to go out and literally in Hebrew, eat, eat, just eat freely, enjoy yourselves, be satiated in all that I have provided. There's just one tree you can't eat from. Just that one. But everything else is yours to enjoy in abundance. And what did Adam and Eve long for? Just the one that God said no. Instead of enjoying all of his abundance and filling their 
bellies and their hearts with what God had provided. They longed for, they craved after that one thing that he said no. He said no. And that is human nature. We are all susceptible to that. So what is the solution? What is the solution? Crush your idols. Okay, ruthlessly, vigorously identify the things that dampen your love for God and God alone and just rip them out of your life. Tear them out of your life. Turn back to chapter 10, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now listen, it's a little sarcastic here. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than he is, are we? See what he's saying? Christians, there's only, there's only one meal that you should be eating, and that's Jesus. That cup, that's the cup of Jesus' blood. That's where you worship. That's where you, you, you sup. That's, that's where you fill your life and say, Christ alone is enough for me. Christ alone is enough for me. There's just one bread. It's the body of Christ broken for you. That's the only bread that you eat. But what's happening is they are, again, literally going back into the idol's temples because of social pressure. They've been unwilling to relinquish the idols of their past. They've been unwilling to just tear them out of their lives and say, you know, no matter what the consequences to me, I will worship God alone. So they're going back into these idols' temples and they're sharing in these meals and they're giving approval to false gods. Uh, Technically, that's what's called syncretism. Worshiping God and worshiping something other than God. Paul says, flee. Flee. Paul actually uses this word just four times in his writings. It's always in the context of some idol or potential item, flee. Run away. If you see anything in your life that could distract you from complete devotion to God, there's only one response, and that is run away, run away, run away, run away as fast as you can. I want you to read with me David's prayer for his son Solomon. As he was about to hand the throne to Solomon, he, he prayed this, Lord, give to my son Solomon a perfect heart to keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, and to do them all and to build the temple for which I have made provision. It says literally, O Lord, give to my son Shlomo a shalom heart. Give my son Solomon a heart that is full, complete, whole. That's what shalom means, fullness. Let it be completely and perfectly and entirely devoted to you. Give that to him. But what happened to Solomon? 
I'm going to read to you from 1 Kings chapter 11. Solomon, the wisest man on earth, wiser than you, wiser than me. Wisest man on earth, but he didn't guard his heart from idols. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. The problem was not with these women themselves, but that they loved foreign gods. And they turned his heart away. He had 700 wives. Wow, right? Yeah, (laughs) that didn't come up last week. Um, 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. It's because that's all he had time for, right? (laughs) He's just paying attention to them. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his father David had been. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And his heart was turned away. Because he did not ruthlessly remove every idol, everything that potentially could turn his heart from the one true God. Men and women, flee. Flee from anything that can divide your heart. Read with me chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. Every person is tested in this area. Fundamental human problem. Everyone will be tested, but everyone has a way of escape. And what's the way of escape? ruthlessly crush, destroy, remove all of your idols. But that's only half of it. You have to run towards something, right? It's not just about what you flee from. You need to flee toward God. Run toward God. I remember when I was in high school, at some buddies, we started walking with the Lord together. And we decided we would pray for one another. And we talked about what, what we were wrestling with and struggling with. And, you know, as high school boys, what's the issue? Wrestling with lust. So we said, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for one another that we would not lust. And at that time, little Casio watches, those were, the, those were the in watch. So we all had our little Casio watches, and we turned the hourly chime on. So every time the hourly chime would go off, we would pray for one another not to lust. Don't lust. Right? So we're sitting in class. Beep. Don't lust. <laughs> we pray. Don't lust. Every hour, we were reminded not to lust. Right? Every hour, we're reminded, don't sin. Don't, don't sin. Don't lust. Lust about what? Right? I mean, you see, the, you see the danger? We weren't moving towards something. We were just trying to move away from something. Don't think about that. Stop thinking about that. Yes, you need to ruthlessly remove those idols, but you need to run towards something, and it is this. Hear, O church, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love God. Put God in front of your face constantly. And when you do, then you will be able to love your neighbor as yourself. So there are two big problems that Paul is addressing in this section. The first is idolatry, but the idolatry of some was bleeding into others. And others were being pulled into idolatry as well. And Paul says that's not love for God and that's not love for others. So beware. It says you who have knowledge, you who think you are wise, there's no such thing as an idol. Therefore, I can just march into that idol's temple. You know, that's sin. And your sin is pulling others into sin. Don't do that. If you genuinely love your brother, you will guard your brother. You will protect your brother. It's the application. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So don't go into idol's temple because if that one who is weak in his conscience, he's, he's not strong enough to say no yet. He sees you who so-called have knowledge. You're going into that idol's temple. He's going to follow you right in and he's going to sin as well. And your sin will spread to all. You know what, church? When one sins, it can affect all of us. It's one of the reasons we have to root out all of our own individual idolatry so that it doesn't affect the rest of us. And then he gives two more applications. He says, don't go into the idol's temple. He says, you go into the marketplace, buy a piece of meat, just don't ask. Don't ask, don't tell, right? Just don't ask. Don't ask. Why? Because the earth is the Lord and all it contains. It's true. There's no such thing as a, as a, a, a real, I mean, this idol. It's, a, it's an idol, but it's not anything. It's not a God. I'm God. So eat it and enjoy it. But if somebody tells you that was sacrificed to idols, what do you do? Flee, right? You remember one word, there's flee, flee, flee. Or you go into a friend's house and they serve a meal before you. Enjoy the meal because God created all food. But if they say, I sacrifice to this idol, what do you do? Flee. You flee. You run away as fast as you can from anything that can divide your heart. I have two thoughts for you then as we finish. First, this week I want you to do a little inventory. What are, what are the potential idols of your heart? And what are the things that, that make you love God a little bit less? And then second, renew your absolute allegiance to God. This morning, Tim's going to lead us in a song as we close. And I want you to take the opportunity as we sing these words uh, to, to think on the words and to use these words as a renewal of your absolute love for God and God alone. Father, we declare our allegiance to you again. Thank you, Father, for your spirit that searches all things and reveals to us where we have chosen to harm ourselves by chasing after false gods, false hope. Renew our our allegiance to you, our devotion to you, our love for you. Thank you, Father, that you have given us all that we need through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.